Amen. If you would turn with me to 1 John. Chapter 1. What an exciting morning to worship. Amen. What an exciting morning to be gathered together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, what an exciting morning to begin our journey through the, the, the first letter of the Apostle John. This morning I'd like to look at verses 1 through 4. Um, we'll look specifically at verse 1, uh, simply because I believe before we dig deep into this book, we need to have a frame of reference to go into some background and some, some different things as an introduction. But this morning we'll read verses 1 through 4, and then look specifically at verse 1. So 1 John chapter 1, starting at verse 1. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be made, may be complete. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, Father, in in awe of your goodness. Father, as we have already worshipped you, Father, in hearing your word, as we have already um, gathered together and, and shared of your goodness, Father, um, both here and, and, and across this country, Father, God, this morning, how could we not come to you, come to your word in awe of your splendor and in awe of your goodness, that God, as we look out and we see trouble in this world, we find the one who gives stability, the one who does not change, the one who is righteous, the one who saves. And Father, it's that blessing that we have in our lives as we come to you, Father. Thank God, it, it should drive us to our knees in worship. God, not only have you created us, not only have you given us every breath that we'll ever take, not only have you given us families and children and roofs over our heads and, and food on our table, Father, it's only because of your patience and your grace and your love towards us. Our Father, none of us are, are deserving. 
And so, Father, even more than all of that, more than all of those things, Father, we come to your word. Your word that is a gift that's unfathomable. It's a treasure that's unspeakable of its greatness. Father, this morning, help us to hear your word. Help us to understand your word, Father, and help us to apply your word. That, God, we would glorify you, the one who saves us, the one who saves his enemy, the one who saves the undeserving. Father, that is me and that is us. So, Father, today we we need you. We need you to draw us. We need you to change us. Father, we might be like you and then so glorify you. Father, help us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God is good. Amen. Amen. Let's this morning look at 1 John verse 1. It says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. As we come to um, 1 John or the first epistle of John, um, we, we understand because of the title we have given it within the canon or the, the, the group of Scripture that, that we call our Bible, we understand that it probably came from John, right? They give us a helpful, helpful hint. But in actuality, um, the letter, this letter from John, actually doesn't specify anywhere in it who the author is. Um, we know through... Several different ways we know because in Second and Third John, uh, the author was is specified in a way. We know that the style is the same. We know that um, just very different things. We also know that from the earliest of church history, the church has always agreed that this was John writing this. And in fact, it it actually uh, goes on to further support that in that he doesn't need to identify himself. He is. Um, an apostle. He is. He is the. Um, if you could say the the head. Uh, he is the maybe the we could say the chief under shepherd under Christ of the church in this time. We also know that he was he wrote this in his later years. Um, he was. I think it was. Oh, I, sh- I probably should have wrote it down. It was later in his life that he wrote the the um, the Gospel of John and the Book of Revelation, and then after that, we presume he wrote the the letters of John. John actually is the oldest living disciple. He outlived or disciple apostle. He outlived all of the other apostles, and and as we come to the letter of First John. We presume, um, as has been presumed throughout church history, that the Apostle John is the last remaining. He is the last apostle standing at this point. Um, 
He is the, uh, we could say he is the last living apostle, and he is now speaking to a, a new generation. Um, to think of it in some way that um, when he was younger, when the, the apostles were, were younger, um, there were, obviously there were more of them living. They were, they were within sight of a, a generation who other people also experienced Christ. Other people, I'm sure, also witnessed the, the, the crucifixion of Christ as there were lots and lots of people in Jerusalem at that time. Um, he is now living in a, a generation that mostly has not witnessed any of these things. In fact, it almost is as if John is almost the last uh, witness. And I believe that's why he lays out before us these very things in verse 1. It says, that which was from the beginning, which, which tells us about Christ, this Greek word beginning actually means the beginning of the time realm. So not the beginning of um, Christ's ministry or the beginning of you know, all of these things, but all the way back before the Garden of Eden, the beginning of time is what he is in reference to here. It says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. John starts his letter with, I have experienced Christ. I have known him. And John has knew him deeply. And we know that even within the 12 apostles, that there were three whom were sort of the inner circle. That was Peter, James, and John. And in fact, other books of the Bible, John even refers to him himself as the apostle whom Christ loved. That John, or Scripture, would set out as even if saying John was the top even of the disciples. He was the one whom Christ loved. He had a connection with the Savior of the world, of which not only at this time period did no one else have, but probably even amongst all of the apostles, no one had the connection that John had with Christ. He says, that which was from the beginning, Christ, which which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands. If you remember at the, the Last Supper, it was, it was John in whom laid his head on Christ as they sat at the table. Well, it actually wasn't sad. It was different, different than our tables. They would be leaning on their side probably, and, and John's head would be leaning probably on the shoulder or the chest of Christ as they they. they leaned, sat around the table. John had a connection, I believe, that no one else had. And John lays this out as he begins this letter. As we look at this letter, it's not like other letters in Scripture. Um, It's more of maybe a a poetic sermon that John has written to deliver to, to, and we don't even really know where he wrote it from, but it was be to, to be delivered to the church. We don't find um, the opening. We don't find the, the, the ending, the conclusion. Um, it's just um, John encouraging the church. 
And the question has to be, why? what is the purpose, or why is John encouraging the church? It was at this point in church history of which Gnosticism was originating and thriving. I've talked about this a few times in the past, but Gnosticism is simply the idea that there are those who have special knowledge outside of Scripture. Gnostic um, is synonymous with the word knowledge, um, that there was, there was extra knowledge that you needed outside of Christ. And so at this time in church history, men were rising up who would say, hey, I know things that, that make me a better Christian, a better believer, a better, um, more religious person, whatever it might be. And if you really want to, if you really want to be there in your, in your spiritual life, you probably should come over to my house and quit going to John's house or whoever's house you've been going to because, you know, those people, I actually, I shouldn't use um, illustrations, but I actually, I remember when I was younger, someone telling one of the, of, uh, the youth that, hey, you know, you should be really start coming to, to my church because it's kind of the advanced program and this is just the, the nominal program. And, and I'm not here to argue any of that. He, it might have been better. Um, so anyway, what I'm saying is at this point in history, it wasn't though revolved around the Word of God. It was additional. It was, it was more. We see that still going on today through different cults like Mormonism, where they would say, well, you need our extra book. We have more knowledge that you need to know to, to make you a, a better or more superior Christian. Um, Gnosticism, though it originated in this time period in Scripture, it has gone on through history. It has gone on and continues to go on within the church. Christ warned, um, the Apostle Paul warned, many people, many times in Scripture, it warns of those wicked and evil men who would be coming to try to deceive those in the church. And the enemy, um, in his uh, craftiness, knows that this is one of those realms of which he can win many people. He can win many, or he can deceive many people and draw them away from Christ. Gnosticism is alive and well today across the world. There were three types of Gnosticism during that time that were prevalent. First um, was one that, that we, it's docketism. It, that what, what this, I don't mean to throw you crazy words, but this, this understanding or this false theology, they, they began to, men began to preach that Christ's body wasn't real, that it only seemed real. That when somehow when Christ was on the earth, he didn't really have a human body, a real human flesh. It just seemed that way. Sort of like if you ever watch Star Trek in the, in the holodeck, where everything is fake, but it seems like you're in a real universe or a real setting. That's what they, they began to teach. And, and that's why John counters this right off the bat in verse 1. It's not that it seems real. Look at John 1.1 1, 1 again. It says, that which, was from, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. John says 
that cannot be true. It can't be true that, that, it, that Christ only seemed to have a body because I have touched him. Right? There's something that happens when we get outside of, when we get to a next generation and, and what happened is in the past. Our schools today take advantage of this greatly. They say, well, you know what? The Civil War happened many years ago. There's no one still alive today, so let's just go into the history books and let's make it say what we want. Let's make it appeal, make it look better, make it look worse, depending on the, the political ideas of whoever wants to do what and who's going to know any different. Right? After all, we're the experts. We can make history say whatever we want. Uh, we see that played out before us and tearing down statues and tearing down any evidence that would that would hinder them from changing history to be what they want it to be. And that was a rabbit trail, so let's rein back in. But Paul is saying you can't do that. You can't come up with a heretical idea of Christ because I touched him. I was alive. I was there. And he's going to the church. And he's saying, what they're saying is false. Because I was with Christ. I knew him and know him. I knew him while he was here on the earth. And I know him to this day. Secondly, um, there was a belief that Christ's spirit descended into Jesus' body at baptism and left before crucifixion. Um, this is a strange um, way of thinking about things. But no, not the less, it is very heretical. If Christ was not 100% man and 100% God, Christ could not pay for your sin. If it wasn't Christ that went to the cross, if it wasn't the Son of God who died upon the cross, there is no man that could take the punishment of God, the wrath of God for all of those who would come to know Christ. There's no man that could withstand this wrath and live, right? They wouldn't survive it. In fact, just for my sin, I should spend eternity in complete punishment that would never end because I could never completely pay for my crimes against God, let alone the sin of all humanity who would come to know Christ. If Christ wasn't God at crucifixion, he cannot save you which reminds us of why these new ideas are so devastating. What, what you believe, let me, let me back up just so everybody's focused. What you believe about God, what you believe about Christ is the most important thing in your entire life. That's why Scripture is so important. It is the most important thing in your entire life. It's the most important thing about you. What you believe about Christ, church, can save you. What you believe about Christ can put you into idolatry, can leave you unsaved. These men, uh, these um, Gnostic people who wanted to, to amass followers after themselves, they weren't concerned with salvation. They were concerned with followers. 
It didn't matter to them that they were leading people to hell because they were going there themselves. It didn't, uh, listen, it didn't matter to Joseph Smith that he was leading people to hell because he was going there. He wasn't regenerate. That seems harsh, but I can, I can, we have plenty of evidence. We don't see a born-again man taking other men's wives and stealing girls and, and doing these things. Scripture is very clear. As we go through the, the letter of John, we will see very plainly that he did not know God. So why would, why would he be concerned if he's leading thousands and maybe millions of people to hell? doesn't care. That's part of the goal of the enemy. In fact, I, I believe that in, in, in some of these organizations, those at the top know exactly what they are doing. But by the time they get to the top, they're so popular that they don't care. Many people are going to hell. Thirdly, the third major false teaching that was spreading rampantly is the separation that matter is bad and spirit is good. And this, this teaching ultimately taught that there was a disconnection between the body and spirit, so sin doesn't matter, or to the extreme, it's not even possible to sin. These were John's main opponents at the time. It was the idea that sin doesn't matter. Sin is a physical thing. doesn't matter. What spiritually is what matters. And so, go live how you want. Church, understand, this is a very common heresy today. There are many people who think they are in Christ and they're on the broad path to destruction because they think that they did some spiritual act. Therefore, they live how they want, and they're going to heaven someday. Do you know how I know? I do funerals. I did a funeral for a person. I met his, his only relative was his daughter, I, I met with her, and she said, I know you're looking for something positive for me to say, but I have nothing. And I had somebody tell me at some point, hey, it's okay, though, because he came to VBS one time, and he came forward and prayed a prayer. That is this heresy. That is the idea that somehow we can do some little spiritual thing and then live how we want because after all, our sin is paid for and it doesn't matter. We see this, I will pick on friends. We see this even within some Baptist church churches who would say, once you're saved, you're always saved. And so, you know what, I'm saved, so it doesn't matter if I'm the preacher, I can cheat on my wife, I can do whatever. I'm going to heaven because you know what, Christ saved me. That is twisting Scripture. Look, understand, and let me, let me phrase this because, because I, I believe that to an extent, but let me, let me clarify it so you understand it. Once you are saved, you are always saved. 
if you are really saved, the saved person doesn't go cheating on their wife. Amen? The, the problem with that theology isn't that it's completely wrong. The problem is the Scripture has been twisted to turn it into this heresy, to turn it into Gnosticism, to turn it into something outside of Scripture. And why is that important? Because that's what everybody wants. That's what, let me rephrase that, that's what everyone's flesh wants. It wants to go to heaven one day and be with their loved ones, but it wants to live how they want and not be told what to do on this earth. That is my flesh, and that is your flesh. But if God has given you a new heart, it's changed. I want to go to heaven because Christ is there, the one who saved me. How could I, how could I trash God's name by cheating on my wife? How could I offend my Savior in this way? How could I go on living to please myself? I have been saved by the God of the universe. He has saved me from my, my deep, deep debt. How could I go on living as I did before? It's that attitude within us. It's the evidence of a changed heart. And it's that changed heart which is evidence of salvation. The evidence of salvation isn't that we've done something spiritual. It's that we've come to know Christ. And he's changed us. Amen? Amen. Because of this Gnosticism, because of these men who who wanted to follow, amass followers for themselves, uh, because of these men whom were even rising up within the local um, churches, what was happening is these men would rise up, and and oftentimes it was within the, the local congregation, and they would amass followers, and then they would all depart. And eventually the church was left, or the the gathering was left with not tons of people anymore. And they begin to look around, and they would come to, maybe it was in a house, so I can't say pews and all these things, but they would come to the house, and they would notice all the empty seats. And they would look at each other, and they'd become discouraged. It's for that reason, I believe, the, the main reason the Apostle John writes this letter. It's damage control. What's, what's happened and what's been promised to come and happen with the church has been happening. And John sees that it's been happening and he sees the discouragement for all of those who are holding to the, the, the teaching as, as handed down by the apostles, that they, they have held to scripture. They have held to what's been revealed to them about Christ. And they find that, that as they've done that, that what also is true about scripture, that, that it's a narrow road of those who know Christ that it's not the broad path, it's the narrow path. And as uh, what, I can't remember the verse where it's at right now, but um, I think it's in Philippians, maybe not. But what's true, uh, what Scripture says, that they have departed us because they are not of us, has found out to be true. This is even in the early church. 
that there was a mass of people. And as time went on, they began to depart. But Scripture has always been clear. They've departed because they were not of us. If one is deceived by Gnosticism, it's because they are not in the Scripture. If they're not in the Scripture, it's because their hearts probably have not been changed. That's why you have a preacher that's constantly harping, read your Bible. Read it. Because if you don't know it, the enemy is craftier than you are. He will deceive you. He will make you depart. Be in your Scripture. So John writes to encourage In fact, back to the the matter is bad and spirit is good, it was very common for these people because it it was preaching what itching ears wanted to hear. It was common for for them to teach that you live however you want and and it doesn't matter. Come be a part of our group because, you know, we're still going to heaven, but, but you can do whatever you want. Just The Mormons made a rule, though. Just don't steal from each other. Steal from the, the other people. Look at John counters that in 1 John 1, 8 through 10. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. It is John saying, this is what the heretics are teaching, but if you think that you haven't sinned, The truth is not in you. The truth is not in these people. Be encouraged. There's only a few, but you have stood firm. You have stood for truth. Secondly, as we look at the first letter from John, we notice that it's it's um, it points out or has two main topics and. Um, if you look on the, the super cool, I won't brag up the banner that Staples made for me, um, it kind of gives a big overview of 1 John, and there's two topics there. The first is, is that God is light, that John is teaching that God is light. In 1 John 1.5, it says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Secondly, the, the second main topic John teaches is that God is love. In 1 John 3.11, it says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. As we come and step back, we look at the purpose, and we've talked about that just a little bit already, the purpose of John writing this letter in 1 John 5.13. It says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Many people have been led astray in this time period. The people left who were steadfast and holding to the apostles' teaching, they needed reassurance. And John says, I write this so that you might know, you might know, you might be assured that you are in the truth that you are in Christ. And so this morning, as we begin our journey in 1 John, it's, it's actually 
could be thought of as a dividing sword. For those who are in Christ, as we travel through it, you should be reassured. You should feel the comfort of of seeing what Christ has done in your life and what He is doing. And be reassured that you are on the path, the narrow path that leads to life. But it's a dividing sword. And on the other end of it, those who are not in Christ should be deeply cut and challenged. That doesn't just mean those who would say they're not in Christ. But this morning, maybe you've grown up in church. Maybe you've been in church for 30 years or 20 years or 10 years, and you felt that everything is all and well. But really, if you search down deep inside, you would say, I'm not sure if I really know Christ. If that's you this morning, God is very good to you. He's given you First John. It's going to hurt. It's going to hurt as we travel through it. But it's going to be the wounds of a friend. It's going to be the wounds of a God who wants to draw you to a real relationship with Him. I believe you will be deeply cut and deeply challenged. This morning, in conclusion, I'd like to go back to 1 John 1.1. It says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. This, um, this phrase, the word of life, is also in reference to Christ, that This is a little bit deeper into theology, but we understand Christ as uh, the one who God, we recognize him as God who took on the flesh to dwell among us. But Christ is also the word. Um, That that Greek word is logos. He is is the word. When, When we read the words of scripture, it's actually Christ in whom we peer, that we, we look at. That he is, he is the truth. All truth is of Christ. And so this morning, as we look at verse 1, we're challenged once again. The dividing line between the heretics, between the, the Gnostics, and those who were in the truth was this, is that the Word of God and the heretics was subject to their mental or their knowledge, their understanding, their actions. The the Scripture was subject to their actions. A true Christian is the complete opposite. A true Christian, when we come to the Word of God and it challenges our brain, we must come to the conclusion that this is correct and my brain is wrong. That is a very hard... I believe that can only happen through God's grace. I believe we can only... Only by God changing our heart can we come to Scripture and we read something that's contrary to what we like, be able to say, I don't like this. It's probably because I don't understand it. Yet God is true and God is good and I am wrong. And so this morning, as we look at 1 John verse 1, John's telling us 
He knew Christ. He touched him. He walked with him. He was taught by him. His understanding came from Christ. And then God called him to write it down in not only the the Gospel of John, but also in, in letters that would clarify and encourage the church. The question then is, who are we to question John? Who are we to make it something else? Are we reading God's Word? Are we trusting God's Word? See, Christianity isn't, isn't, it's not just a blind faith belief system. John was an eyewitness. We're getting right from the mouth of the eyewitness, the one who Christ loved. Who are we to go to Scripture then and say, well, you know what? God's given me better information than this John guy. And yet so often in our culture, in our American Christianity, it's what everybody wants to do. Because surely, surely, surely God's love is centered around us and not centered around himself. That, that's sometimes hard for people to hear. God's love is centered around himself. And thankfully so, because he chose to glorify himself in loving us. Amen? Amen. This, this is about God's glory, not Doug's glory. It has nothing to do with me. Anything that I have from Christ is by his grace. It's nothing I've deserved or earned. It's simply because God has chosen to glorify himself in declaring to the world, I am the God who saves. And I get to be a part of that. Who am I to change what he said? Amen? This morning, if you're not in Christ, turn to him. This isn't blind faith. This is truth. God has been so gracious. Who are we to to, to declare, declare the rules to him? Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning as as originally your enemies. We come to you this morning with a flesh that throws all sorts of ideas. Your word explains it for us even that our our, our heart throws all kinds of crazy things at us because it's wicked and it's evil. It's a heart that despises you. It's a heart that won't be told how to live. It's a heart that that willfully chooses to be your enemy. And yet, God, by your goodness and your grace, you choose to change our hearts. You choose to take out our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh 
that loves you and desires you. Father, this morning we come to your word. And Father, this morning we should be reassured that your word isn't devised by man. Your word is the truth. Jesus declared, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Father, this morning, let us, let our hearts be changed, that we would simply submit to your truth. And that as we submit to your truth, Father, we, we find other themes, even in this letter. As we submit to your truth, Father, it's then that we find happiness and and joy, and all these things of which our hearts constantly cry out, you'll only have joy apart from God doing your thing. Father, I pray as we go forward into the letter from John that that God, you would soften our hearts. That if we're in Christ, Father, we would be assured as we look out our windows and we see what seemingly appears to be the world crumbling apart in front of us, that we would be assured, Father, of your love. We'd be assured that, God, you have placed us in this very time in history because, God, you have a work that you've chosen us to be a part of, that you've chosen to use us for your glory. Father, if there are those here who are deceived by clever schemes of the enemy that think that they are in Christ but but really aren't, God, I pray as we go forward that you would illuminate that to them, that they would see it. My sister cried out this morning, Father, that she spent a whole life going to church. She never knew who you were, and she never knew who she was in truth. God, that you have changed her because of your truth, because of your Holy Spirit. God, I pray that that would be true of any who don't know you. And Father, if there are those here who they know they don't know you, Yet they are deceived by their flesh, saying they won't be happy. They won't like living for God. Father, I pray that you would draw them. I pray that you would give them understanding. And Father, help us, Father, as we go forward, that we would always submit to your truth. Because, God, you have been very good to us. You've been very good to me, Father. As I read this morning, Father, of Charles Spurgeon, and he, as he had planned to go to college, and he went to, to meet the college tutor, and somehow they got in two different rooms of the same house and gave up on each other. As a result, didn't go to college. 
And as a result, see, saw and sees your providence. That nothing is by accident. Nothing is by mistake. There is no one here this morning that's here by mistake. God, change hearts that we might submit to your word. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.